G'day everyone, welcome back to Ideas Matter Podcast. We're here with you today presenting Civilization and Its Discontents by Sigmund Freud. Sigmund, the original Sigma male. (laughs) (laughs) I've been thinking about that one for a week, man. (laughs) All right, show's over, thanks everyone. (laughs) We're not going to top that. That's a wrap. (laughs) Uh, this, uh, This is one that I think both of us have been wanting to look at for a while. Um, what were your general impressions of it? What did you think? I don't know. I really, I really enjoyed it. Mm. It was actually a really enjoyable read. Um, I probably went a little bit cagey mm. because I think Freud is one of those people kind of like Nietzsche, kind of like Marx that has sort of got this sort of internet personality around him mm. of people who, Frankly, probably mostly have not actually read Freud mm. or Nietzsche or Marx, but he's one of those figures that has this kind of like community around him, and that made me a little bit cagey because I, I guess I had this like straw man of what Freud was and this sort of stereotype of Freud, uh, and also like my partner's just studying psychology, and she's like, yeah, like no one uses Freud anymore in psychology. No one does psychoanalysis. Um, it's not like his methods are not scientific. So I was sort of expecting to kind of read it and be pretty dismissive. But on the whole, I found it really enjoyable and really, really interesting. Uh, And I just sort of think that, like, one should treat it in the context that it was written. Like, sort of, because he's, you know, he's writing a lot about sexuality and the effects of, like, repressive, of civilised sexual morality but I think it's really, really important that when you talk about that, that you remember that he's literally writing in sort of the last two decades of Victorian era sexual morality. Like he's not talking post-1960s sexual revolution. He's talking like you cannot have sex before marriage. Um, so the context I feel like is really important to understanding Freud. Mm. And if you have that context in mind, I think it's a much more agreeable read. For me, at least, anyway. Yeah, fair enough. His his def his reputation definitely precedes him. Mm. Uh, he's he's a real meme thinker. Yeah, his ideas get memed, but uh, there's there's quite a di- bit of difference between the meme Freud and actual Freud, as with you know most any other famous philosopher. Yeah. Um, I was looking forward to reading it, and then I hated the start, but then I ended up really enjoying it again. Interesting. Um, but we'll, I'll just crack in with some uh, sort of background info. So he's writing this in 1929. So by this point, he's already f- pretty famous. He's like a world-renowned psychoanalyst and writer. Um, and he's writing this after World War I, uh, which kind of shook up the pretty much every aspect of European life, you know, cultural, political, uh, intellectual as well. Um, but also it's... Freud gets presented as this uh, sort of radical leap, but it's it's not so much the case. Like yeah. psychoanalysis and like the idea of like mining the interior with like massive cultural and intellectual wave in early 20th century Vienna in particular, but also just Europe in general. Like he draws a lot from nature. And I'm, this is finally going to be an episode where I can make comparisons with nature and they're apt because <laughs> he, he is actually uh, quite influenced by nature. But... Just in general, like Vienna at the time, which is where Freud's from, uh, had a huge thing for the unconscious, the interior of your mind. Mm. Um, 
both in art and in uh, intellectual life. Uh, so with that as our background, let's get cracking into it. Um, I think I reckon we'll just go through like part chapter one, two, three, four. Wait, but did your edition, because I read like the civilization and its discontents, which yeah. what is 1929? Yes, that's right. But there's also, I don't know if you yours has it, I read um, uh, Civilized Sexual Morality. Mine has that, but it was at the back, so I didn't read it. Oh, I read it first because right. it was written in 1908, so right. I thought makes sense because his, his thoughts kind of change a little bit. Right. So I read that, and then I read Civilization and Its Discontents. What did you think of that earlier on? I thought it was better, Yeah. to be honest, uh, which is probably why I went in enjoying it more. Because you're right, like in Civilization and Its Discontents, it sort of takes a while to pick up steam. And sort of the first two chapters don't really have anything to do with where he ends up finishing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the what's the name of the f- of, the, of the last essay? Um, it's like civilized sexual morality or something like that. Civilized sexual morality and modern nervous illness. Yeah, that was act- that was really interesting because his whole idea in that is that um, he begins by quoting another. Let's just say he's another psychoanalyst or he's a doctor of some description who basically makes the observation that, like, modern life moves at such a rapid pace and there's so much external stimuli in modern cities that people are basically overwhelmed and Mm -hmm. there's no opportunity to relax. And he makes the really interesting observation that when people relax these days, they actually relax by just having even more external stimulation. So, I don't know. I mean, I thought while reading it, wow, if they thought that then, like, how would they react to today? Because I'm I'm thinking, you know, like watching TV, scrolling social media, you're you're never not being bombarded with all this, like, all this sensory information. And so this um, other psychoanalyst that Freud is is quoting basically says, this is what has, has created this outbreak of modern psychological diseases, all these neuroses, people are nervous people are having mental breakdowns etc he blames it on this kind of rapid pace of modern civilization which i quite liked and freud's like yeah all of this is true but it's too general freud th- thinks that to be more specific we need to look at what's actually being repressed in modern society and for him that's our sexuality and our sex drive and so he sees victorian era sexuality i.e., I, you can't have sex before marriage even when you're married you know you don't you don't really talk about sex that much. You only really have it for the purposes of, of procreation. Um, he sees that as being unnecessarily restrictive and creating these host of neuroses because basically people are completely ignorant of sex before they get to marriage and then they enter marriage and they're really shit at sex and then they hate it so they stop doing it and then the marriage has no purpose and people are really unhappy. And he says this kind of manifests itself in women in like forms of hysteria and other like obsessive neuroses. Uh, in men, it manifests in a host of other ways. But he makes the really interesting observation that he says society kind of implicitly acknowledges that these sexual codes are too hard to live up to because there's a sort of double standard where like people kind of expect that men will break them before they get married or break them during marriage. But there's a double standard with women, like it's worse if a woman breaks it. And he goes, well, the fact that we kind of allow men to break it, we're sort of admitting that these standards are unrealistic. So he sort of sees the like restrictions on sexuality that modern society has created as being 
psychologically repressive and onerous and leading to mental health issues, to use today's terminology. So I found that really quite interesting. But again, he's sort of not, he's not unambiguously like, yeah, we should all just, you know, be having sex all the time and become polyamorous. And I mean, that's not what he's saying. He's sort of saying, you know, this is done for a reason, but perhaps we've just gone too far. Uh, and he says, because he, he says, because people are not having sex, because it's repressed, it comes out in other forms. It comes out in, in masturbation, for example, which he's not, he's not a favor of. It, it, he's not, he's not in favor of, sorry. Anti-Kuma. He's an anti-Kuma. Because like Aristotle. He, yeah, sure. <laughs> like Aristotle. Um, he, he says that like, basically it's like a quick route to pleasure. And that makes you slothful and lazy and it teaches you that you don't have to work to get pleasure if you can just masturbate. Um, So that's his whole thing with masturbation, which interestingly, like, he's against masturbation not because he's against sex. Rather, he's in favour of sex and he thinks because people aren't having enough sex, they're wanking too much, basically. Uh, So it was really interesting. And then he kind of introduces this idea, which he picks up more on in civilization and its discontents. This is my attempt at a segue. Nice. And this is the sub, like this concept of sublimation, which is a really interesting idea, um, and it's a good example of like psychoanalysis. You know, you can, oh, that's interesting. It makes sense, but it's one of those things you can't really prove it or disprove it. It's sort of hard. You can't. It's almost impossible to measure. But the idea is that you you take an instinct or you take a drive or a motive, and you basically transform the energy of that drive and you channel it into another direction that's more socially acceptable. So it becomes this kind of like higher form. So the idea is that like the repressed sex drive can be channeled into creative works or intellectual works or basically all the things that are necessary for civilization. And so this is why it's civilization, it's discontents, because Freud's sort of saying on the one hand, civilization depends upon a degree of repression and a degree of sublimating our lower our lower drives, which he thinks are fundamentally aggression and, and sex. But in doing that, we run the risk of actually making us unhappy. Uh, so it's a really kind of... He's quite a nuanced thinker, actually. Like he's, It's not black and white for Freud. It's like, this is bad, but it's also necessary, so we kind of need to balance it. Um, but yeah, it's this idea of sublimation that like you can turn your sexual instincts into this higher form. And if we don't do that, then we would have never left the caves i guess like it's something necessary for the development of civilization which is an interesting idea yeah and reading that like the whole idea in freud of social strictures uh and repressing your desires are necessary um to get along with other people at the same time those desires are productive in a way reminded me a lot of kant's oh yeah like unsocial sociability yeah yeah like i i feel like there's a you could probably draw a pretty clear line between the two because in the sort of outlines of the thought there's there's quite a bit in common um but there's one thing that pissed me off at the start of civilization and its discontents you might say that uh it's damaged my ego (laughs) uh, and i thus had a reaction to it but he like you said it didn't really have all that much to do with the rest of the book yeah um this is where he starts out in chapter one talking about uh, this feeling that was purported to Freud by his friend, who was this French writer, who was also kind of a religious mystic. Oh, yeah, I forgot about um, this. Yeah. yeah, and it gets described as the an oceanic feeling. 
Uh, so Freud's friend is talking about this mystical feeling of like eternity and boundlessness and like you feel like you're one with the universe. Um, and his friend says this, this feeling is the source of the sort of religious impulse. It's from this feeling uh, that people get that religion kind of grows out of. Um, and Freud spends the first chapter or two sort of critiquing this notion. Like he admits to never really experiencing it, but he wants to inquire if it's really the source of religiosity or if religiosity comes from somewhere else. Now, I guess that is the sense in which it links up with the rest of the text because he uses religion to start talking about repressed desire and then guilt and then it goes into, you know, civilization. Um, But I just thought it was very odd of Freud to say, yeah, I've... Never experienced this feeling, uh, but I'm going to critique it nonetheless. And he critiques it by saying that it's, in a sense, a residue of, like, your infantile ego. Like, when you're an infant, your ego is sort of all-encompassing. You can't really distinguish between yourself and others. Your desires permeate your existence. You want sleep. You want food. You want milk. You want to get changed right but over time uh per freud you develop a sort of distinction between yourself your own ego and the external world other egos and according to freud this religious feeling this sort of mystical feeling his friend was reporting is just a residue of this infantile ego which i don't buy at all uh because he conflates it with the desire for like a father figure, right? Uh, where was the line? Um, it's something like a common man's religious feelings are like a sort of juvenile wish for a powerful father mm-hmm. because you have this infantile, per his, uh, per his description of it, all-encompassing, boundless feeling. Um, and it's from that feeling you take a sort of mental leap uh, to the idea that there is a powerful father, a powerful God behind this feeling and you ought to obey this God's commandments. But I, I don't know, man, I, I found that so unconvincing. Um, so like I went into it keen and then I read that and I was like, dude, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I don't know. I just, that's like someone saying, I've never heard before. I'm deaf. I don't know what sound is or music is like, but I'm going to make some like elaborate critique of why actually you're infantile for liking and listening to music. <laughs> like if, if that experience is closed off to you, then it just does not make sense to me that you can critique it to such an extent and end up by, I, I know I'm taking the piss a bit by saying this, but by saying, yeah, you're a baby kind of for feeling that. Yeah, well, he is kind of like basically saying that like religious people are intellectually infantile yeah, and have not really like grown out of this desire. Uh, it's pretty harsh. Uh, I mean, I mean, look, it just if I'm staying within the strictures of like Freud's thought, I mean, I don't, I think a lot of it is just kind of like baseless, but this idea that um, the religious feeling of being at one with everything else, which, yeah, is a thing that a lot of people feel. Freud goes, okay, well, when kids are developing, 
they have no like concept of like this of a of a separate ego. Like your internal mental states and external stimuli, according to Freud, when you're a baby, is just all one thing. And yeah, as you say, like this religious feeling of being connected with everything else is a residue of of that infantile state. Um, it makes sense within the confines of his thought. Mm. But I, I don't know enough to actually be like, yes, that is in fact how infant humans cognitively develop. Like mm. I don't know whether that's actually true, uh, whether they whether they learn to because he says like through the process of pleasure and pain, um, because humans are pleasure seekers, we learn to wall off external stimuli because we find that like pain comes from that, uh, and so we we build up this like separation between us and the external world. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just, I just don't know whether that's actually how humans develop. It's an interesting idea. Um, but I thought it was a bit ambiguous about whether... And Freud writes... It's just sort of the way he writes. He, he kind of spends, you know, five to ten pages on an idea and then he'll sort of dismiss it in a single sentence and then be like, actually, I think it's this. And then he'll just move on. Mm. And I sort of thought that's what he was doing with this kind of oceanic feeling of oneness... I, I read it, maybe I'm wrong, where he's like, yeah, but um, I don't think that's true. He, I, I think he's saying, no, actually, it's just this infantile need for protection. Like, I thought he was introducing that as, like, a different explanation. Like, I didn't read it as him connecting the two. I think he was, I mean, this is just how I read it. He was like, yeah, that's plausible, but I don't really think that's what's going on in the case of religion. I actually think religion is more so explained by just the fact that like when we're kids we need protection and we have this desire for like a father uh, and that's what religion is, mm. um, which makes more sense to me because religion seems to sort of provide this like ontological security, this sort of like comfort that like, yes, there is meaning to the universe. There are answers just because you're not, just because you don't know them, they're out there. It's, it kind of provides this like comfort to people. That makes more sense to me than the whole sort of like, oh, it's just this residue from when we're, when you're a kid and you can't tell the difference between your ego and the external world. Like, I don't know. That, that, mm. I agree with you. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. But I, that, he, that thing that you were talking about there, like the idea of like religion as a sort of worldview that's looking for outside answers that you don't have to think of, right? It, it's in a sense as Freud would say, not fully mature because you're not thinking for yourself in a sense. Mm. I, I did feel like he, yeah, that, that is distinct from that thing where he was talking about the oceanic feeling, but my gripe with it is that he's describing this oceanic feeling as something that arises in the infantile ego. And then religion as a sort of social institution uh, is somewhat linked, but not exactly linked. You get me? Um, but well, yeah, you, you you're, you're you're quite right to say it's like kind of Kantian, right? Because in in that essay that we read a bunch of episodes back, what is enlightenment? Kant basically says, you know, it's the courage to think for yourself, to use your own understanding, hmm. and there is this sense that like because in religion you're always relying on the unexplained and some form of authority, and there's this always this element of faith not reason like not using your own understanding that it is in that sense juvenile 
you're right. I mean, it's the same idea here in Freud. Mm. But I'm, I'm just hung up on this idea of him just dismissing religious experience as someone who's never experienced religious experience. Like, he sort of dismisses that as uh, a factor in religion arising, right? And which, like, I guess is, like, true in a sense. Like, not everybody who is a practicing religious person would have felt a religious experience. And also, likewise, not everybody uh, who is not religious has not had a religious experience, right? I don't know. I'm talking myself in fucking circles, uh, getting stuck on this. Let's move on with the text because I don't even know what I'm saying. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, all right. From there, he goes on to uh, talking about what the people aim for in life. That's how he kind of segues from uh, away from religion because he says religion is an attempt to answer the question of life's purpose. And what people really want is to strive for happiness, right? They want to become happy and remain so, in his words. So he posits this thing called the pleasure principle. People have an inbuilt drive, an inbuilt desire to seek pleasure. Uh, But this can lead you awry, right? So how can this lead us awry? Big, Big Aristotelian energy saying like, oh, the point of human existence or the good for humans is, is happiness. Like mm. we, we, we want to be happy. Um, how does it lead awry? I don't know. I can't quite remember. <laughs> it's, it's like, does, he say, does he say like, well, again, is it a sort of similar Aristotelian argument where he's like, well, pleasure, by chasing pleasure, you can end up chasing things that are actually self-defeating. Mm that sort of are not, like you can sort of get stuck milling around in like the lower drives of human nature and just, yeah, trying to gratify every single instinct that you have. But mm. you know, if we just do that, then we, we never really achieve anything. Yeah. Is that the sort of idea? Yeah, partly. Um, his main thing is that it's, happiness is fleeting and it's found usually in that release of like pent up needs. Um, but they kind of, they sort of grow the more you feed them, right? Which is a sort of Aristotle thing as well, right? You get stuck in chasing your desires, um, which also kind of ties into sublimation, right? So you take these drives and desires that you can't ever really fulfill all the way. It's, you know, you you can empty the cup, it's going to fill up again. Um, uh, That can reduce suffering in a way. Right. If you are able to sublimate your drives for Freud, it takes away from the pain, from the discomfort, from the unease, the discontent uh, mm. of not being able to fulfill those drives. Mm. Um, and I found it really interesting that he says work in general uh, does this really well in, on a civilizational level. He says like it does a particularly sublimation does a particularly good job. Um, especially if it's like artistic or intellectual uh, in its focus, you know, it's not going to all the way satisfy you completely. But if you're sublimating yourself towards artistic or intellectual ends, like that's going to make you feel a whole lot better Mm. in regards to your desires. But work in general is a sort of outlet for your desires because you're taking energy, you're taking your desires and you're expressing it, you're expending that energy through some other means. Yeah, I, 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 this is the concept by which the whole kind of thesis sort of falls or stands, mm. this idea of sublimation. 
And I, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, it's perhaps unnecessarily complicated. Like perhaps if he just said that, hey, uh, humans only have a finite amount of energy and if you just sit around all day jerking yourself off, <laughs> you're not going to get much else done uh, and you're probably not going to be as happy as a result. Uh, so it's in your own psychological and social interests if you just exercise a bit of <laughs> restraint and do something else. That That's, fu- like, that's fine. That, I don't think that's not controversial. But the idea of sublimation seems to go like a step further than that and, and say, well, you know, he's kind of positing the sex drive as the engine room of like of of human behavior, right? Like that's the at, like at root that is what is pushing us forward to do things, the sex drive. And again, it's like Nietzsche says Nietzsche says it's the will to power, so does Morgenthau, and Freud says it's the sex drive. Uh, that's what's like pushing us forward and animating us. And so when you forego sexual pleasure and you engage in an intellectual pursuit, for example, you're actually like transforming this originally sexual energy into something else, which is a different thing. Like he's not just saying you're taking energy per se and expending it somewhere else. You're actually transforming what is originally sexual energy. Uh, into this other higher form, which I don't know. I just, I don't know what to say to that. Like how, how, how did you arrive at that idea and what is your evidence for it that basically everything can be boiled down to the sex drive uh, and actually the, the, you know, the intellectual scholar is really just this kind of, you know, chaste, sexually restrained individual like i don't i don't i don't think he does a convincing job at linking the two mm. if that makes sense yeah no fair enough i get what you mean i thought the sub the whole idea of sublimation was probably the most interesting thing in here but yeah the the yeah how do you sort of separate uh the idea of like human energy, you know, your sense of energy in general, uh, away from uh, this idea of a sex drive in particular, which I don't know. I I am pretty sympathetic to the idea that there are separate drives in you and you can sort of restrain one and put it to another end, but whether or not that's in all cases the sex drive under different manifestations and the, that particular energy that sexual energy going down different avenues and different streams yeah i'm not uh i'm not I'm not entirely convinced of that yeah because it's also worth noting that he's not necessary he's not talking about physical energy like he says psychical energy like mm. that's the phrase that he uses so it's it's not just like oh you have a, have a wank and then you've still got enough physical energy to, say, go to the gym. I, I guess this is where the Nietzsche is kind of lurking behind Freud because, again, the will to power is not just a physical thing. It's will. It's your mental will to impose yourself on reality. It's this kind of like psychological energy that you have. Uh, and that's also what Freud is talking about. He's talking about psychical energy. So... 
you can have a lot of physical energy, but that's not really what Freud is getting at. Yeah, it's like mental and emotional energy too. I think yeah. it's it's all tied up for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the mental seems to me on my reading to be more important because it's like that's what you're exhausting. That's what's getting exhausted when you when you engage in like sexual pleasure, for example. Mm. Um, I don't know. I just I don't. Maybe I mean all all I, all I can say is maybe. I mean this reminds me of Trump. You know, like Trump has this theory that like humans are batteries. Yeah, yeah. And like so, therefore, we have a finite amount of energy, and that's why he doesn't exercise. Mate, he doesn't want to expend all his chi. Exactly, he doesn't want to expend his chi. Uh, <laughs> so. Like, on a real kind of, like, you know, monkey brain level, that sort of makes sense. Mm. <laughs> you can't get more energy. we just got a finite amount. So he sort of doesn't exercise because he doesn't want to waste energy. But you watch him, like, give speeches, and he does have this kind of, like, especially given how, like, patently unhealthy he is, he does have this bizarre amount of energy, mm. psychological energy that he kind of just, like, expels when he's talking. And he's so, you know, just charismatic whether you like him or not, like you can't deny he's charismatic. Um, and it's also like, that's, I guess like what Freud is talking about, like this kind of, this kind of psychological force mm. is what you waste if you are just a kuma. Yeah. <laughs> Trump anti-kuming. I didn't think we'd hit these points. That's not a, that's not a great mental image. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely didn't think we'd be drawing this to Kumas and Trump, but I like how this is going. Yeah, we're going to open up a whole new uh, audience for, for Ideas Matter. <laughs> um, uh, we should get into the civilization part because he talks about sublimation and, you know, these drives as not just being something that occurs on the individual level, but on a sort of social and what he calls a civilizational level, right? They go outwards from within you and inwards from without, right? There's, there's a sort of interplay between the, the individual psyche and the society and they affect each other in a sense. Um, so he, he goes on to this idea that like a lot of people see civilization itself as a major source of mental distress and posit that ridding ourselves of it could solve these woes, these sort of sense of guilt and frustration and unease that people feel in mental illness. Um, uh, you know, this is something that you will sort of hear if you hang around uh, enough intellectual spaces that there's something about civilization itself that causes there's something about society itself that causes mental unease mm. um but that he sort of draws on from that uh to go on for the rest of the book all right how does he draw on from that let me look at my fucking notes i'll edit this out <laughs> all right yeah so he goes on from the idea of sublimation to uh talking about civilization and the relationship between civilization and the individual, right? So he draws on this idea that was sort of floating around at the time, and you can kind of draw it back to Rousseau, that civilization uh, or society plays a large part in man's mental unease, right? There's something about living in a society 
that can cause mental illness, right? And he teases out this idea from the rest of, for the rest of the book, right? Like this is very similar to Kant as well. Like the claims of the individual versus the claims of civilization are in a sense like irreconcilable. You can never fully satisfy your drives. Um, yeah, it's also very Hobbes. Yeah, but civilization sort of found, or in a sense, evolved a way to manage this, um, which is through guilt. Yeah. So it sounds like the genealogy of morality by Nietzsche, right? Yeah. Th- no, this is when he starts talking about guilt. It's very Nietzschean. Yeah. Um, it it's kind of this sort of like basically. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's struck my memory now. So he talks about, um, like, we don't actually, when we do things wrong, we don't actually care. Like, we just we just worry about being caught, according mm. to Freud. Uh, so how does society get around that? It kind of creates this idea of guilt, and we sort of internalise it, and we create, like, a guilty conscience. But that's sort of a an artifice of civilization, according to Freud. It doesn't exist. Like, we have to be socialised into feeling guilt and having a guilty conscience when we do something wrong. And that's kind of like a a mechanism by which civilization sustains itself and, and gets over this kind of Hobbesian problem that uh, allegedly life is nasty, brutish and short because we all just want to kill each other. Mm. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, and like we said, very nature. Um, but he draws this uh, into his sort of model of consciousness. You know, if, if you've heard of Freud, you've very likely heard of his split up of the human psyche into the the ego, which is sort of your your active conscious mind, uh, the ids, which is sort of your you know tempests of unconscious drives and desires, yeah, and the, the, the iceberg, yeah, and the, the super ego, which sort of straddles the two and manages the ego. It's it's the conscience. It's the, th- the thing in your mind that tells you no and makes you feel guilty. Mm. And oh, Freud, yeah. Freud says that the superego is a sort of development of civilization. Yeah. Like that aspect of your mind doesn't exist in the, you know, quote-unquote state of nature, which he doesn't use, but he sort of talks about this idea of like a pr- primordial state of man from which people, from which society has developed guilt. Yeah, and like this, this guilt ends up being you know a socially, socially productive force because it keeps people from you know killing each other and breaking up families by having sex with whoever they want. Um, so guilt, in a way, drives society, drives civilization forward by acting as a sort of glue. But like you said earlier, Freud thinks that this has gone too far, right? There's a sense in which this guilt has gotten out of control to the point that it's causing mental anguish mm. and mental illness. Mm. So a lot of these mental illnesses where he talks about neuroses and whatnot um, are socially conditioned, right? They don't sort of arise, quote-unquote, naturally in man. Yep. What was most interesting to me about this is, and there's a sort of, this is like an ambiguity in the text, I think. I don't really know if Freud himself is quite settled on what he thinks at this point about whether or not or he sort of implies that maybe they're one they're two sides of the same coin but the drive to sex and the drive to aggression 
uh, he both sees as being really important. And he says that the aggressive impulse of humanity is what sort of threatens to rip apart civilization because he sees us as being like naturally aggressive and wanting to dominate other people. And this is also bound up in a weird way with the sex drive. Um, just don't ask me how. Uh, but yeah, w- the really interesting thing about that is because, yeah, he says the super ego is this kind of construction by society. Um, how that actually works causally, like how society can create this space in your mental life, I don't know. But he says, how do we get rid of our aggressive impulse towards others? We turn it inwards. So the super ego, which is like chastising us and telling us not to do things, is being aggressive towards our own ego. So like he actually says that we we, we turn the aggression inwards and we punish ourselves. Um that's literally just nature. Yeah, which like that's the genealogy of Mars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is, which is really interesting uh, and a cool idea. But again, with so much of Freud, it's like, well, how do you, how do you substantiate that claim? Mm. I mean, yeah, like a lot of this stuff sort of goes beyond substantiation. It's not something you can sort of like empirically and quantitatively test and measure. Um, but I don't know. I. This notion I buy to an extent. And you were mentioning the, he talks about the sex drive and aggression as sort of two linked but somewhat distinct things. Now that I think of it, I, I could just be misinterpreting what I'd read, but he talks about libido quite a lot, but then he will specify. Uh, sexual impulse and he'll specify aggression. So maybe in a sense we've like misidentified libido only with sex drive where he might be using it in a broader sense where he's also including that aggressive impulse. Yeah, potentially. Potentially. That makes sense. But yeah. um, Dude, just don't coom. Don't coom and don't be so aggressive all the time. Crazy fucks. I don't know. Like, uh, also, I mean, he look to be fair to to be fair to Freud. Like, he doesn't actually like mention Hobbes at all, um, and to sort of call it Hobbesian is is to say it's Hobbesian in the sense that the way in which Hobbes is like misinterpreted by ninety nine percent of people, mm. which is that humans are aggressive power seekers who just want to tear each other to shreds. Meme Hobbes, meme, which is like literally not what Hobbes said. Like mm. Hobbes said where shit scared all the time Mm. he said the fear is the motive to count on and we enter into society to get away from this like uncertainty of social relationships and humans act out violently not because they have some kind of innate lust for power or just want to kill people for fun it's it's game theory it's like if i don't do it you might do it Mm. so i better do it first it's fear and uncertainty that makes humans behave that way according to hobbes uh so this kind of like meme version of Hobbes that is sort of implicit in Freud, that we're this inherently aggressive race that if we didn't do all these kind of fancy psychological sublimation, we would just be tearing each other to shreds all the time. I, I don't know whether that's actually true. Mm. Like that, again, just seems to me to be like a bit of a meme. Mm. Uh, that's not really based on anything. 
Yeah. It's just conjecture that like, well, you know, if not for, if not for society, we'd all be killing each other. I mean, again, like you said, like this is, he's writing this after World War I and Hobbes is writing after the English Civil War. So, you know, you, it, it makes sense that you would sort of think these things based on your own experience. But to project that and be like, this is human. Like I'm, I'm just in a stage right now where whenever I hear someone do like an armchair, this is human nature for all time and all places. I'm like, oh. <laughs> how do you know that? Like how do you, like you literally cannot know. Mm. You just cannot know. And so when Nietzsche says it's all the will to power or Freud says it's all the sex drive, I don't know. It just feels to me like you're, it's un, an unnecessary reduction of like the complexity of humanity into this like it's all just this one thing. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is something that Nietzsche talks about as well though where uh, he says – so much of philosophy and especially what you'd call the great philosophers, they're just talking about themselves. Yeah. Like yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. they're just projecting. Yeah. Right. And I don't know, at least Nietzsche can admit that of himself. Yeah. Whereas Freud is from, as far as I can tell from reading this book is sexually, f- sexually frustrated man. <laughs> yeah. Which look is, it is something that gets sort of colloquially brought against Freud. Like he just talks about wanting to, fuck his mum because he wanted to fuck his mum. <laughs> it's like, nah, I, don't, look, I, I wouldn't go that far, but I don't know. I think, yeah, he he's sort of universalizing his own experience. Mm. And, you know, I, I think that's a large part of why Freudian psychotherapy doesn't really work all that well. Like you don't really see Freudian psychotherapists out and about, mm. you know, you go to a, you see your GP, and you, you ask for a mental health plan, right? <laughs> Isn't it going to send you to your local psychoanalyst? Yeah. He's going to tell you to stop wanking. Yeah. I mean, if if it worked as a therapeutic method, like we'd probably be seeing it. Yeah. But I don't know. Interesting ideas. Um, well, actually, now that I'm just looking at my notes, this thing I did think was interesting where he starts talking about the uh, – the injunction to love thy neighbor, like that ethical impulse. Oh yeah. And he says that doesn't really make sense because you can't love absolutely everybody and everything. You know, there's to love some things, you have to have a lack of love for other things. Um, And he draws this even further with the sort of aggression impulse, right? Aggression's inherent to man uh, and he has this quote, it's always possible to bind quite large numbers of people together in love, provided that others are left out as targets for aggression. So there's a limited capacity for love in humans and it has to be sort of balanced psychologically with some aggression, some hate, some dislike towards other things. Yeah. Um, and that I thought was really interesting. Like it, it draws into the idea as well of like the narcissism of small differences, which he... I think talks about directly, right? Like love within a community can cause hostility outside that community. Um, mm. I just thought that was cool. I have nothing further to comment on that. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I, I I agree. He's like, he's like, he literally says most people are not worthy of love. Mm. Like most people are shit. They yeah. don't. You shouldn't. You shouldn't love your neighbor. Like, what if your neighbor's a dick? Don't love him. Uh, but yeah, this idea is like the ex- exclusivity of the emotion is what actually makes it 
powerful. Mm. And he's like, well, if you loved everyone, then your friends and actual loved ones would, would feel a bit cheated. Mm. Like, well, what does your love mean if you're just giving it to everyone? Mm. Um, but yeah, he, he, he talks about how, I mean, this is really like, so like love brings people together. It brings two individuals together to like form, you know, a relationship and procreate. And he goes, well, okay, that's, that's, that's operating. But society needs to go further and bring entire communities together. So that's where this like love thy neighbour injunction comes from to sort of complete this process of like of civilization, which is always threatened by aggression. And he kind of touches on it, but doesn't go into it, but like the death drive. Um, yeah. But what I found, like what I most liked about Freud is this idea that, and he kind of touches on it towards the end, and he's sort of rejecting the critique that you let off with, that all our sources of discontent arise in civilization. And if only we could just go back. Freud says, well, actually, uh, there's something inherent in humanity, and there's something inherent in the sex drive and the pleasure principle which makes it so that we can never be satisfied. And I, this, I found this idea fascinating and, like, really quite compelling. It's just, like, it is just the human condition that we are never, ever, ever going to be completely content and satisfied. We're always going to have this, I need more, but what if? Oh, if only the grass is always greater on the other mm. side. It always has this. It's just part of how we are we're fundamentally just discontented creatures and that's kind of in a way tragic that I liked most. I'm like, that's a really, really genuinely like valuable insight into the human condition. Yeah. I feel. Um, and I think you can take that, like that's a, that's a real gem mm. for me. Even if you don't buy into the other stuff about the sex drive, this idea that it's not civilization per se, we're just always going to be discontented. It just kind of manifests itself in different contexts. Like, yeah, there's no perfecting the human condition. No. It's flawed just, you know, by nature of what it is. Yep, exactly. Well, I feel like we can leave off with that. It's a good place to end it. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, you are flawed people. You're flawed. Give up. Stop trying to, stop trying to perfect yourself. But also don't coom. Don't <laughs> coom. <laughs> Look, I don't have a problem with it. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sold on this idea of sublimation. But uh, you know, if it makes you feel better, do whatever you want. Peace. Peace. <laughs>